Hello, everyone, and welcome to part one of our three-part series on the war in Italy in 1943 and 1944. I'm pretty excited about this because this is probably the most ambitious project I've done uh, so far in the podcast. Um, and I really think if I was going to do, you know, a specific episode on the war in Italy, I really wanted to do, um, you know, a three-part series. I wanted to do multiple interviews, try and examine, um, you know, the different battles uh, with, you know, different historians. Um, and, you know, obviously it took, I think, almost a month and a half to get all the interviews done, but, you know, we got it done. And again, I'm pretty excited about this just because whenever you're doing um, a topic like this, I think it's important that you go in the depth, that you do different perspectives, um, and you try and, uh, you know, examine all the parts of the campaign. And I think ultimately the war in Italy is over, over, always overlooked um, in the grand scheme of things um, just because you had uh, most of the fighting occurred in uh France and Belgium and Germany, obviously, and the U.S. was and the Allies were involved in the Pacific. Um, and by the time the invasion of Normandy happened, it uh, Italy had kind of become a backwater. But um, throughout 1943 and early 1944, uh, the war in Italy was the only place that the Allies were, or the Western Allies were uh, fighting. Um, so it was kind of the main focus of the Allied war effort for uh, a number of months. Um, and I think it's always interesting how the invasion of Italy was developed, um, how it kind of all unfolded and everything like that. So I really wanted to get into background um, and provide context to what was going on uh, in the wider war. So kind of by the uh, end of 1943 or mid-1943, um, the Allies, um, Americans, British, uh, New Zealanders, uh, Australians had thrown the Axis out of uh, out of uh, Africa. Um, that was the first instance of uh, U.S. troops um, getting in combat, and uh, it was it was it was not good. Um, the initial months of uh, U.S. troops uh, being involved uh, in combat in Africa did not go well. Um, there was uh, some disasters at Kasserine Pass, and you know the U.S. Army was not prepared. Um, it didn't have a lot of experience. It didn't have the equipment. The, uh, the U.S. Uh, sort of industrial base was still transitioning uh, and they're producing more equipment. So all these factors kind of delved into eventually um, some setbacks, especially uh, with the Americans. But um, the British, Eighth uh, Army under Bernard Montgomery, um, and eventually George S. Patton, uh, famous U.S. commander, eventually came in. And eventually the access kind of were pushed back um, and pushed out of uh, Africa. Um, so then there was a question of, well, what do we do next? And it was at this uh, Casablanca conference in 1943 between uh, Bernard Montgomery um, and kind of the senior US commanders, the senior British commanders, uh, President Roosevelt and Winston Churchill um, to kind of plot the next moves over what to do. And there was a lot of tension in that meeting and all these sorts of um, uh, outside factors of, well, the America, uh, the U.S. were advocating for a cross-channel invasion immediately. They shouldn't be waiting around. They shouldn't get involved in kind of what they viewed as would be a quagmire uh, of getting involved in invading Italy just because it, it, the terrain was so uh, defensible. Well, the British and Winston Churchill thought that if they could knock Italy out of the war, they could draw 
um, uh, German forces into the peninsula um, and, you know, keep um, German divisions tied down there so that when the eventual cross-channel invasion would come, they wouldn't be able to send those sorts of reinforcements. Um, and, and it was in that meeting that sort of the Americans got outfoxed, outclassed in a lot of ways. The British came prepared with, you know, charts, numbers, here's what we need to do, here's the plan, we can execute it right now, and the U.S. kind of got caught with their pants down. Um, so eventually, and Roosevelt uh, and some of the other commanders eventually sided with the British saying, well, we can invade Sicily and we can eventually invade Italy. It doesn't seem like that all crazy of an idea, even though... But in the wider context of the war, the decision was really a political move. Um, once the Germans were, and Italians were thrown out of Africa, it was the there wasn't any fighting really going on elsewhere. Although there was like the Battle of the Atlantic, uh, there was um, uh, Allied bombing campaigns occurring in uh, Germany. But um, the Russians, the Soviet Union, was facing almost 150. Um, German and uh, Axis divisions, and Joseph Stalin was saying, "Why aren't you helping me? You need it. We need a second front. We need a cross-channel invasion now. Like I'm facing the entire um, Axis, all the Axis armies. Um, you need to do something." So, in reality, the decision was really more of a political move rather than a tactical move. Um, Again, Sicily and Italy, it's very mountainous, lots of rivers, very defensible terrain. So there wasn't really, there wasn't a ton of decision making. Uh, there wasn't really, or uh, there was, it wasn't necessarily logical, I think, in the sense that they could have, you know, invaded elsewhere to try and occupy uh, the Germans of divisions. But again, I think a lot of the route was, well, we can knock Italy out of the war, which was the kind of main uh, Axis partner, although um, Hungary uh, and some other uh, countries in South uh, Eastern Europe were aligned uh, with the Germans, but uh, with uh, Mussolini, who had risen to power in the 1930s under with you know fascism, um, kind of taking a very similar uh, trek of uh, 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 Hitler uh, using a very nationalistic um, type rhetoric and policies to uh, revive what he hoped would be kind of a new Roman Empire, um, eventually taking territory in Africa, which is where kind of, uh, as I mentioned earlier, where the Americans uh, first got involved and got combat experience. Um, the British had been fighting both the Germans and the Italians um, as early as 1940 in Africa. And as I mentioned, eventually that fighting would draw down in 1943. So then there was a decision um, to invade um, Sicily. It was codenamed Operation Husky. Um, and I wanted to give background um, before we get into the interview because we cover three different battles, um, specifically the invasion of Sicily, Operation uh, Avalanche, which was uh, the landing on uh, mainland Italy at Salerno, and then eventually the Battle of Ortona. Uh, where the Canadian 1st Infantry Division would uh, engage in a pretty bloody battle. Um, and that was because we were able to uh, interview Dr. Mark Zelke, who is probably the most preeminent um, World War II historian from the Canadian perspective. So um, we kind of cover a lot in that interview, but it, it was uh, really cool. But to give some background, you know, it's interesting. Um, after the um, Allied invasion of uh, or allied had thrown out access the axis out of Africa. Um, there was a decision of, well, what exactly, what divisions do we use? You know, who do we get involved? Um, and their decision, at least from the American side, um, there was a number of divisions that would be involved. Um, 
that came from you know different nationalities um, and starting with the Americans, the ones that would be mainly involved was the 1st Infantry Division, uh, the Big Red One, probably one of the most famous um, Allied uh, or American units uh, to be involved. Um, the U.S. 3rd Infantry Division, which was a regular army division, but they had not seen, I don't believe they had seen combat in Africa. Um, there's the U.S. 45th Infantry Division, which was a National Guard division, uh, mainly made up of um, units from uh, Colorado. Um, uh, Kansas, and I forget the last day, but it was a National Guard uh, division. And I always think the National Guard divisions are always interesting because um, in the lead up to the war, the National Guard was kind of seen as an easy kind of side gig. Um, a lot of people did it um, on the side um, to just make some extra money. Obviously, in the 1930s, the uh, U.S. was undergoing the Great Depression um, with you know Roosevelt and the Green, or not the Green New Deal, um, the New Deal. Uh, it was trying to get um, people back in the work and government sponsored um, enterprises um, and was, you know, a big part of that. And the National Guard was kind of a way for people to make some money on the side. So um, these National Guard divisions were critical um, in the early years of the war, especially when the vast majority of the soldiers participating were citizen soldiers. The U.S. Army was not on um, the all-volunteer professional force that we think of today. It was, you know, a a group of draftees. It was mostly of draftees and um, uh, conscripts. It was, again, it was not this sort of professional force, but a lot of these regular army divisions um, in, were critical kind of in the early going to provide manpower, at least some sort of training experience that could be involved early. And at least with the British, um, a lot of the soldiers participating in uh, the invasion and in the Italian campaign were mostly experienced. The majority of them had seen combat in um, Africa, including the 5th Infantry Division, the 50th Infantry Division, the 51st Infantry Division, and the 78th Infantry Division. So again, it was a lot of these units were experienced. And also participating in uh the invasion of Sicily was the Canadian 1st Infantry Division. Um, the uh, Prime Minister of Canada had advocated for um, the Canadians to participate in the invasion of Sicily, so that's kind of how they would be involved um, in the invasion. Uh, but we'll cover some of that in the interview. Um, so we'll cover um, the invasion of Sicily, um, the Battle of Ortona, and then after I'll kind of go into depth about the invasion of uh uh, Italy at Salerno um, and fill in the gaps about how um, the sort of would lead to the eventual Battle of Artona. So I hope you enjoy the interview and I really hope you enjoy um, the first part of this three-part series. I think it'll be uh, really interesting. So hope you enjoy. On our first episode of our three-part series on the Italian campaign in World War II, we welcome on Mark Zelke. He is an award-winning author generally considered to be Canada's foremost military historian. His Canadian battle series is the most exhaustive recounting of the battles and campaigns fought by any nation during World War II to have ever been written by a single author. In recognition of his contribution to Canadian history, he was awarded the 2014 Governor General's History Award for Popular Media, the Pierre Burton Award. In 2007, his book, For Honor's Sake, The War of 1812 and the Brokering of an Uneasy Peace, won the Canadian Authors Association Leela Common Award for Canadian History. The Canadian Battle Series book, Holding Juno, captured the city of Victoria's Butler Book Prize in 2006. So welcome on. I'm glad to be here, Riley. 
And to start off, what is your favorite subject of history to research and talk about? Why is your favorite? And how did you become interested in Canada and World War II? Well, I'll go to the, that part first because it leads to the, the other parts. Um, I, was, I grew up in a family that had a number of uncles and great uncles who had been involved in World War I and World War II in the Canadian Army. And uh, unlike a lot of veterans, they were quite willing to talk about their experiences in the war. And as a result of that, as a young kid, you know, I was intrigued and fascinated by their stories and then led that led to wanting to know more and more about Canada's role in World War II. And when I was starting to get into writing about it, I discovered that there really wasn't a, that Canadians hadn't done a really good job of writing up their stories of the wars, either World War I or World War II, but even more so World War II. And so it was one of those kind of the buck stops here. Somebody's got to write about this. Somebody's got to tell that story. And so here I am now uh, with the 14 books in the Canadian Battle Series uh, and more to come. So that really is what I, you know, led me to my fascination with the Canadian Army and really wanting to bring their story front and forward for Canadians, but also for the rest of the world. <laughs> And what are some of the challenges uh, that you have encountered, uh, whether it was writing uh, the battle series or any other books that you had to research? The really big challenge I've faced with the Canadian battle series particularly is um, there's a lot of material available, a lot of archival material. Um, one thing about armies is when they march, they also generate an enormous amount of paperwork. Uh, and they're always trying to learn and be better at, at what they did. So they have a whole protocol called Lessons Learned, where um, they would, after each battle, really put a microscope on it and say, okay, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? And so as a result of this, I end up with, um, for the last book, for example, I had about 15,000 pages of material um, to try and sort through and, and make sense of. So that's the one big problem. And the other big problem I'm facing these days is when I did Ortona, which was the first book, um, I interviewed about 250 veterans. That was in the mid-1990s. Um, for this last book that came out a year ago, the river battles, uh, I was able to interview one veteran. That's all that's left. Um, and so the, you know, our, our World War II veterans in Canada and in the United States as well, they're disappearing at a very rapid rate. They're all in their 90s pretty well now. And um, that generation is going to be gone in another two, three years probably. Uh, and so that's a lost opportunity. You know, by the time I got to some of these books, it was just too late to be able to do the interviews that I would have loved to have done with some of these people. But, you know, we work with what we got. Uh, fortunately, there's a lot of oral histories that were done in the 1990s, 1980s, um, particularly by universities uh, who were brilliantly taking their grad students and sending them out to interview veterans, uh, particularly here in Victoria, because it's a large retirement hub in Canada. Um, we had soldiers, retired soldiers from the entire breadth of the country came here to retire. And uh, the grad students from University of Victoria were out there in the 70s, 80s and 90s interviewing them. So we got hundreds of interviews. So I use that a lot. 
And to get into Canada and World War II and sort of the lead up to Italy, um, to start, what was the state of the Canadian Army at the beginning of the war? And how did Canada go about trying to mobilize its population uh, for a global war? Well, the army was in an abysmal shape. Um, the permanent Canadian army, as it was called, permanent force, was only a few thousand men. Um, they, we have a large regimental structure that is underneath that, where um, it's local-based militias in um, individual cities and in, uh, right across Canada. So when the mobilization happened, the first thing that happened was those regiments mobilized. Um, so we have a, a core of reasonably well-trained soldiers um, through the militia system. And then they started recruiting. And Canada has the distinction that um, we were the only country in World War II on the Allied side that all of the soldiers who went overseas and fought were volunteers. Um, we had a conscription system, but they cons cons those that were conscripted were uh, guaranteed that they wouldn't be sent overseas. They would do home defense, basically, was what it was called. Um, and so that was kind of unique. Uh, it really, what it, you did is you saw a very highly motivated group of soldiers going overseas because they were all volunteers. And they were all in this together, particularly at the beginning, uh, because they came from the same communities. Like, for example, there's a, a, the North Shore New Brunswick Regiment. Their, um, their commander was the high school principal, and almost all of them had gone through his school. And so you have this incredible community that then goes overseas. That gets lost as the war goes on because, of course, they start getting killed and replacements start coming in who are from drawn from all over, the, all over the country. And to kind of follow up on that with that regimental structure that you explained, um, did the vast majority of these soldiers come from these you know, specific geographical places in Canada, or was it sort of a mix? Um, they came from right across the country, but they initially came as members of that regiment. So that would be very locally based. So we have a structure, for example, if you look at, it, at Italy, the Canadians that fought in Italy, uh, 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade, for example, is made up of three battalions. And those battalions are from Vancouver, Edmonton, Alberta, and um, then a permanent force one that was based in, in Calgary, Alberta. So very localized um, you know, regions that they came from initially. Then as the, comp as the casualties rise, um, soldiers start being drawn in from reinforcement pools and they come from all over the country. And generally, as a all-volunteer force, uh, what was the attitude of these soldiers? What was kind of their attitude towards the war, given that, you know, Canada was one of the first, you know, allied nations to join Great Britain and yeah. France in the war? Well, it was very, um, a, there was a lot of attention in Canada on what was happening in the politics in Europe and the rise of, of fascism and under Hitler and Mussolini in Italy. Um, so people were pretty aware uh, of what was happening. And when Poland was invaded and the British um, declared war, it was pretty much just a, a foregone conclusion that we would, we would go. Um, and Australia followed very quickly after, and New Zealand, and pretty soon all of the Commonwealth countries are, are in. Um, and people, the soldiers were, you know, they were really motivated. They're, 
their purpose was to go over and 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 um, defeat fascism and Nazism and and restore democracy in in Europe. And they were pretty much that was really a, a guiding force. And you know there was also an element of they were young men, they were in the midst of the Great Depression, and it was a chance to have some to go and have an adventure and see the world. You see that in the attestation papers a lot. I want to see the world. And did a lot of Canadian soldiers see much combat before the invasion of Sicily? And if so, where? It wasn't a lot. Um, there was a two battalion unit that was sent to Hong Kong to uh, bolster the, um, the British defenses there against the Japanese. And they, so they had a very short time. They arrived in November and then the Hong Kongs were run by the Japanese in, in December. Um, and Christmas day, the, uh, the colony is surrendered to, to the Japanese. So, and then those who survived, they, they spent the rest of the war in Japanese prison and prison camps in very difficult conditions. Um, so that was the one battle. And then the second major battle the Canadians were involved in was also a failure, um, which was the uh, raid on the French port of Dieppe um, in 1942, August 19th. Uh, and it was intended... Um, well, the debate goes on on what was supposed to be achieved there. But, um, you know, 4,400 Canadians were um, involved in that and almost all of them were either killed or taken prisoner. Uh, so it was a very big failure. So when Canada started going towards, uh, it wasn't initially an intention at all that we would be involved in the Sicily invasion. Um, but... Politically, uh, the federal government in Canada was pressuring to see Canadians go into, Canadian Army in particular, to go into action somewhere um, because the, the Royal Canadian Navy was heavily involved in the Battle of the Atlantic. Royal Canadian Air Force was heavily involved in particularly Bomber Command and its operations against Germany um, with bombing raids. And it was sort of felt that the Army was sitting in England uh, doing not much. And so then that was the decision that they would send 1st Canadian Infantry Division and 1st Canadian Armored Brigade uh, to Italy to or to and be involved in the Sicilian invasion as part of the British Eighth Army. And that was the idea was, is that would be a temporary posting. And once the invasion of Sicily was over, the Canadians would come back home to England to be ready for the invasion of Normandy as a single combined force. That doesn't happen. The uh, first Canadian army presence in Italy gets built up as, as we move forward into the Italian campaign. And to get specifically in the Operation Husky, which was the invasion of Sicily, uh, as you mentioned, the 1st Canadian Infantry Division and the 1st Canadian Armour Brigade were deployed to the Mediterranean. Uh, what was their objective in Sicily uh, during the initial landings? The, um, they landed on a beach called Bark West, which is just to the uh, west of uh, Syracuse on the uh, southeastern corner of Sicily. And they were on the left flank of the British Eighth Army and were next to the American Army, uh, their right flank. And uh, so they were to provide a connective uh, flank protection to the British Eighth Army and also guard the flank of the American forces as they came in. Uh, the landing itself went very smoothly. Um, the defenses were held by a very low morale Italian uh, coastal division that basically um, crumbled 
as we we hit the beaches. Um, it, the invasion went in behind a very heavy aerial and naval bombardment, so the Italian troops were very shaken up by the time we we hit the beaches. So initially, it looked like a bit of a cakewalk through uh, Sicily, but we had a problem. The uh, First Canadian Infantry Division, as it was sailing down to Sicily, uh, three freighters got torpedoed by a German U-boat, and as luck would happen have it. Um, those three ships were carrying almost all of the transportation um, equipment, uh, all the jeeps, trucks, everything like that, that the 1st Canadian Infantry Division needed to um, roll out and head off in the, in the advance. So we also had the distinction of being in a, a division that um, basically marched on foot through through most of, the, of Sicily in that campaign uh, as we just didn't have any equipment to to move yeah you had vital equipment that could move tr you know enough jeeps and that to pull the artillery and things like that but the infantry was pretty much on the on foot for the entire campaign and as you mentioned after the initial landing where there wasn't much resistance um, did the see did the division see uh, a lot of combat in Sicily um, and if so where was that on the island so they did. Um, what happened very quickly was 8th Army, the British units were coming, trying to go up the uh, eastern coast of Sicily toward to Messina was the ultimate goal, where there's a very narrow strait that then goes across to the, um, the toe of the Italian boot. And um, the Canadians were on that left flank, so they were moving up into the um, mountains of the foothills of Mount Etna, the big volcano uh, that dominates the island. And they were on the um, going to go around the eastern flank of the volcano of Etna, and that was the uh, role. But they were still at that point seen as guarding the left flank of the British 8th Army as it spearheaded up through Catania and along the plains towards Messina. However, um, the Germans came in and they block British 8th Army's main force in front of Catania and the British can't fight their way through. So General Bernard Montgomery, who's commanding the 8th Army, turns to the Canadians and says, you have to drive through um, and turn the German flank so that the Germans will have to back off and, and we can then continue the advance along our line. So we end up going into the uh, mountains, the central mountains of, of, the, uh, of uh, the island of Sicily. And it's, so you have mountain, two mountains, one on one side, one on the other side, and they're usually connected by a ridge. And the Germans had, this gave the Germans wonderful defensive positions that they could just set up on. And then we had to root them out of there. And that kind of fighting happened again and again and again uh, for the entire time that the Canadians were there. So we were in pretty much, once we got into the fighting with the Germans, we were in intense action for the, pretty much the whole campaign. And ultimately, there's about, uh, I can't remember the exact number, about 485 Canadians are killed in, in, in the process of that fighting. And after the liberation of Sicily, and as you kind of mentioned, the Canadians playing an important role of that, the decision was made to uh, invade mainland Italy with Operation Avalanche. Um, to start, what was the strategic situation in Italy by the time uh, the Canadian First Infantry Division um, and the Armored Brigade were tasked with taking uh, the Moro River Valley in Ortona? Mm -hmm. 
Well, a major thing that happened is very early in September, we have the um, Italian government uh, route. They, they uh, remove Mussolini from power and they surrender to the allies. So that changed, that's a huge game changer. Suddenly the um, Italians are out of the war, uh, except for a few, um, they, they were, there was enough loyalists that they formed a couple divisions of fascists that then fought with the Germans alongside the Germans. Um, but the majority of them, the soldiers went home and or they joined um, units that then became part of the, the allied forces. Um, so they're gone, but the Germans are coming in in, in huge strength. Um, the decision was made by, uh, guided by Field Marshal Albert Kesselring, um, to not withdraw any ground in Italy. Instead, they would hold at every possible river crossing, uh, height of land, etc., and try and contain the Allies in the southern part of Italy. And strategically, this was important because northern Italy is a major industrial hub in that time frame, up around Milan particularly. And the Germans were using those factories to manufacture munitions and, and all sorts of stuff. So they, they wanted to be able to contain and continue using that industrial base and, um, and also just to um, basically bleed the Allies. In, in southern Italy. So that's how we end up there. We, we fight um, our way north from the boot up to the Moro River Valley. Um, and it's at the Moro River, we've been out of the line for a little bit and 1st Canadian Infantry Division is put back into the front of the British 8th Army to um, push the way across the Moro River and then seize the town of Ortona, which is a, a minor port at that point. And by the time the Canadians had sort of landed and crossed into the boot of Italy, had that transportation situation been resolved or did they also have to kind of march up through the boot of Italy? No, they had resolved it. Um, the British uh, had a the division known as the famous Desert Rats. Um, they demobilized the Desert Rats to send them up to uh, England to become part of the invasion force that was good mustering for uh, D-Day. And um, we inherited their equipment, which was in pretty rough shape, but at least it was a start, <laughs> you know. Um, and then as time went on, the, the supplies start flowing from England to the Canadian forces and new vehicles arrive and, and uh, the supply, that part of the supply issue gets resolved. And as you mentioned, the Canadians would go back into the line. How did they go about trying to deal with sort of the difficult task of taking the town of Ortona and the surrounding area? It's a really tough uh, strategic uh, operation that has to go on there. Um, the ground there, it's, well, first of all, it's December. Um, and Italy is lovely in the summer. And when, but when you get out of those parts of the country in, in the winter, uh, there's very heavy rain usually. Um, and that rain turns the landscape into a kind of gumbo, uh, very thick mud. Uh, I walked across with the uh, Moro River Valley in, in December as part of my research. And you end up with these, um, your boots, uh, end up encased in mud that sort of takes on the shape of a, of a, 
a snowshoe and, and you can't get it off. It, it just sticks on there. And so, you know, you imagine being a soldier carrying about 80 pounds of gear, uh, your weapon and everything like that and trying to fight in that. And also it's, it's, um, it's vineyards and olive orchards. And so the trees and the vines provide extremely good cover for the Germans um, to use. And the Germans were incredibly good at, at defense. Um, they knew how to dig in really well, deploy their forces, and, and then hold for as long as they could. And then they knew how to melt away and then go to the next spot, which may only be a couple hundred meters back, um, and dig in again and do the, do the whole thing over and over and over again. So that was the kind of approach to Ortona that occurred. And nobody anticipated a fight inside Ortona itself. Um, the Allies and the Canadian High Command as well, uh, the thought was is that the moment we pushed into Ortona, the Germans would withdraw because nobody, neither side normally wants to be involved in fighting inside a, a small town or city because you're going to have a lot more casualties just because it's going to be such close quarters fighting that happens. But the Germans uh, who were holding Ortona were the first Fallschirmjaga division, which is a parachute division, and <clears throat> they had experience in fighting in urban areas and they very they spent about 10 days before the the Canadians arrived on the outskirts fortifying the town uh, they created positions in the basements of the houses uh, that they could use as machine gun posts um, lots of things like that they uh, blew down the um, the large dome of the big cathedral in the city in the town and in order to form a rubble pile that they could fight behind and so when the Canadians get in there movement on the streets is almost impossible because the moment you move out into the streets, the Germans have it covered from all sorts of angles with machine gun fire. And was this the first time that, you know, the Canadians had faced a serious urban battle? Yes, pretty much. They'd, they'd been involved in one small uh, urban fight in a town called Leonforte in, in Sicily. And that helped because they had got some experience in that action but it was pretty limited. Uh, the Germans there were never intent on holding the place for any given amount of time. Here in Ortona, the Germans are gonna stay as long as they can possibly do. And um, it wasn't possible for the Canadians to outflank Ortona because it's got water on the one side of the Adriatic is there. And on the other side, there's a very large, um, almost canyon, um, that provided with a small shelf of land that's overlooked by Ortona. And so the Canadians were trying to fight their way around there, but it was very easy for the Germans to contain that uh, advance as well, which they did. So we're funneled effectively into Ortona and the only way to win this is you gotta fight your way through the town. And so that's what they said about doing. And they're pretty good at improv improvisation. Um, the one thing about the Canadian Army is, I think because they were a volunteer army, they were pretty good at looking at a problem and, and coming up with solutions. Um, and what they came up with was a tactic called mouse holing, which uh, involved taking explosives, uh, blowing the town of Ortona, the houses are all connected as they go along the street, they form a long row. And so we would blow holes in the walls of one building, 
jump into the next building, fight the Germans out of there, do it again, do it again, do it again. And that's what they did. Um, and interestingly, mouse holing was not a, it was, they invented it for the Canadians, but it was a well-known um, tactic that the British did teach in, in England to the armies called, in a course called fighting in urban, urban built up areas. But um, the Canadians had never been given that lesson and nobody came and told them that. So they, um, it's what sort of a Canadian legend is that we invented mouse holing, but we didn't really. <laughs> but for those guys on the ground at that time, they did. And how, you know, did the men who fought at Ortona uh, describe the fighting, whether, you know, it was during your interviews or, you know, in the course of your research? Most of them described Ortona as probably the worst, the worst fighting they ever saw. Um, because it was so um, intense and uh, at such close quarters, they were, you know, often, you know, well, the Germans are on one side of the room and they're on the other side of the room, you know, throwing grenades at each other. Uh, there was a lot more of um, uh, actual hand-to-hand -hand combat between the soldiers and, and, you know, all that stuff. It's when you kill a person at that close range, it has a, you know, fairly major impact psychologically on you. And I certainly found that most of the veterans of, who had been in Ortona, the town itself for the fighting, um, they carried with them a lot of uh, bad memories. You know, the memories of, of friends being killed in those close quarters, memories of killing uh, Germans in, in such close quarters. Um, and so often in, in, in war, particularly in, in World War II, well, not particularly in World War II, but in World War II, um, there were a lot of soldiers who went through the war never knowing if they had actually killed anyone. You know, they were just shooting. They were not shooting at a particular individual. Um, and for Tona, it was a different, you know, uh, largely almost everyone I interviewed, you know, they would say, yeah, you know, I killed three, four Germans in, in the course of... And Ultimately, uh, how long did the battle last? Uh, the actual fighting in Ortona was uh, a little over six days, um, but it was intense. You know, it, it was nonstop. Um, you know, they were just pretty much fighting uh, 24 hours a day. Um, one of the things the Canadians did as well, and this is true of Eighth Army, uh, the British Eighth Army, all the way through the war uh, in Italy, is we did a lot of the fighting at night because um, the Germans didn't like to fight at night. And so once we, once the Canadians realized that and the British realized that, it was, well, take the fight to them in the night and you've got an advantage. And uh, because, particularly with the Canadians, um, Canada was a very uh, rural country at, in World War II. Um, so a lot of the soldiers, they, they, they were uh, hunting and fishing and stuff like that as young men. And they knew how to move around uh, in countryside and um, ultimately within the streets of Artona uh, at night and not be making a lot of noise and that. And so they could sneak up on the Germans. And ultimately, how many casualties were there uh, on the Canadian side? And do you think this battle was an important contribution uh, to the campaign in Italy? Yes, we had about uh, 2,000 overall casualties in the Battle of Ortona. Um, and it was considered important because um, 
we did take the town and it forced the Germans to uh, fall back um, and that port ultimately does get opened up and it becomes a minor supply node. Uh, and it bloodied the first, the first uh, German parachute division and the 90th Panzer Grenadier divisions both very badly. Um, these remain very tough divisions, which in a strange twist of fate, the Canadians will continue to come up against repeatedly as they go up through Italy. So um, both those divisions and, and our first Canadian infantry division particularly develop a, a deep um, respect for each other because you know you're going to be into a tough fight when each of them come up together. Um, so it uh, set the tone for uh, what's going to happen next is most of British Eighth Army, including the Canadians, ultimately leave the Apennine, the uh, Adriatic coast, go over the Apennines and join the big fight at Monte Cassino that is going on. Um, and that battle in Ortona weakened the Germans sufficiently that it's possible to take these Canadians and the other British units away from the Adriatic coast, send them over there and form a much stronger fighting force that is then able to punch through on the um, right, left flank of Monte Cassino and, and open up the way to Rome. So that's kind of the dynamics of what the Battle of Ortona achieved. And my final question is ultimately, what impact do you think the war had on Canada? And what do you think, you know, the legacy is uh, for, you know, Canada and their role? Uh, their role the real impact that came with, with the war was um, Canada by that time, you know, the, the, the soldiers, the Canadian people were thinking of themselves as Canadians. They no longer were seeing themselves as members of the British Empire, which had been sort of the situation when the First World War started. But it gave Canada um, a place of importance on the international um, playing field. At the end of World War II, we are the third largest allied army outside of the Soviet Union, if we just leave them out of the picture. We have the third largest Navy and the third largest Air Force. Um, you know, so Canada, you know, was fighting way up above its, uh, its weight, really, in a, in a, in a way. Um, it was a total war as far as Canadians were concerned. Our, our industry was completely retooled to do nothing but supply war materiel. Um, and so it changed the country when we came, and when the soldiers came back, um, they had gone to war in the depression and uh, the country was suffering really badly. Uh, they came back and they said that that's not going to happen again. We're not going to go into a depression, back into a depression. We're going to build a country that is uh, the country that it is today with um, a very good, uh, you know, the, the professional base of people who are well-educated, um, social, social welfare um, system in place that provides health care and everything like that. That was all built by the soldiers, really, who came back home. That was their legacy that they've passed on to the rest of us. And so that's why, you know, in Canada, they're generally referred to as the greatest generation. And uh, that happens a lot in the States, too, I know. And... Um, and we still think of them in that way. So I hope you enjoy that interview uh, with 
Dr. Zelke. Uh, before we wrap up today's episode, I want to kind of dive uh, into depth about uh, the kind of lead up to the battles of Monte Cassino and Anzio, which we'll be covering uh, in our next uh, couple episodes. Um, so eventually, uh, after Operation Husky, the Allies would take um, Sicily uh, by late August of 1943, and there was a decision to uh, immediately invade Sicily right after. Um, the main invasion force would eventually uh, be scheduled for September 9th. Uh, the main force would be landing around Salerno, which is along the western coast of southern Italy, um, and it would be consisted of the U.S. 5th Army under Mark Clark, who would probably go on to be one of the most, probably the most controversial uh, commander of the war, but we'll definitely get into that later. Um, and the British 8th Army would eventually cross um, the small little strait between Sicily and Italy and then work its way up and eventually uh, meet up with the uh, with the U.S. 5th Army. Um, and approximately there were eight German divisions in southern Italy at the time. Um, this included the Hermann Göring Division, uh, the 26th and 16th Panzer or Tank Divisions, and the 15th and 29th Panzer Grenadier Divisions, and the 1st and 2nd Falkenjägers, which was the uh, paratroop uh, divisions of the German army. So it was kind of a mix of kind of regular, um, a, lot, a couple of the divisions, mainly the Hermann Göring Division um, and the 16th Panzer, Panzer Division, um, had seen uh, combat in Sicily, so it was kind of a mix of sort of regular and very experienced battle-hardened uh, German divisions. And to highlight some of the divisions that would be taking place, uh, at least in the American, I think, from the perspective, um, the 36th Infantry Division, which was a National Guard division from Texas, and as I mentioned earlier, the 45th Infantry uh, Division, uh, which was mostly uh, Colorado, Kansas, uh, National Guardsmen. Um, and these were mostly kind of the main divisions that we were participating, as well as the 3rd uh, U.S. Infantry Division. But again, um, the 1st Infantry Division had been sent uh, back to Italy, or not the Italy, uh, back to uh, uh, Great Britain for eventually the cross-channel invasion of, of uh, into France. So it was kind of, again, the uh, 45th uh, Division had seen combat, but the 36th Infantry Division had it. So again, it was kind of a mix. Um, and eventually, uh, the man that would be facing off against the Allies was Albert Kesselring. Um, Adolf Hitler um, had sided with Erwin uh, Rommel, who had decided that defending um, Italy south of Rome would not be a strategic priority. And kind of as a result of this, um, Albert Kesselring, who would be kind of the main German commander um, throughout uh, uh, that period, 43-44, would kind of be, wouldn't really have any, uh, any kind of reserves to draw upon that they would, you know, be able to. Um, and eventually uh, there, there was a decision at the landings at Salerno to um, you know, not have a naval or aerial bombardment in order to secure surprise, but a tactical surprise wasn't achieved. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there were Italian and German divisions already there waiting. Um, the Italians had established artillery and machine gun posts with um, tanks throughout the landing zones, which made the initial landings pretty difficult. But for the most part, the beach areas were 
uh, eventually taken pretty rapidly. But at around seven o'clock, um, I believe the next day, um, there was a, a counterattack from the 16th Panzer Grenadier Division, which caused very heavy casualties. But luckily, um, the Allies um, had extensive uh, naval gunfire support and um, pretty much obliterated um, most of the tanks that came. Um, but both the British and Americans made pretty slow progress. Um, there was a 10-mile gap between the British and the Americans at the end of the first day. Um, eventually, they were able to uh, link up, and it occupied around 35 miles of coastline at a depth of around six or seven miles. Um, but a couple of days later, around September 12th and 14th, the Italians and Germans organized a pretty heavy counterattack, um, hoping to throw Salerno into the sea. And it sort of mimicked that uh, earlier counterattack by the 16th Panzer, or Panzer Division um, with very strong uh, naval gunfire support and artillery being able to eventually fend off uh, uh, these counterattacks. So eventually, after that counterattack, it was pretty obvious to uh, Albert Kesselring that they should pull back um, to defenses that they were uh, making around the uh, Volturno River, um, which was um, kind of a smaller river uh, in southern Italy. Uh, and eventually, the British 8th Army at the same time had eventually met up with the U.S. 5th Army. Um, and the first elements of the Allies had... Um, captured Naples, which was kind of the main uh, city in southern Italy, October 1st. And eventually they've reached that first offensive line at the Volturno River on October 6th. And although, you know, Naples was secure, which would be a really important port for supplying the U.S. troops, um, and there was also important airfields um, that, you know, would eventually have allied uh, bombing squadrons that would go on various missions in the Germany. Um, it had you know, successfully done that. But by early October, the whole of Southern Italy was in ally hands, but now they are facing these uh, first of uh, a series of prepared defensive lines running across Southern Italy from which the Germans could choose to both fight um, and giving ground pretty slowly. Um, eventually it would pretty much turn into a very attritional fight. Um, and after kind of the failures uh, to try and immediately uh, get across the Volturno River, it was eventually up to the 1st Canadian Infantry Division to go and take Ortono. So that's kind of how that battle eventually developed. But um, kind of without the Allied superiority in mechanized equipment um, and in the air, um, it was really, really uh, a grinding and attritional uh, battle against a very skillful and experienced uh, German defenders. Um, it wasn't really until mid-1944 that the Allies would be able to cross through the Volturno, Babar, and Bernhardt lines to reach the Gustav line, which was the main backbone of the Winter Line defenses. And this sort of set the scene um, for the battles of Monte Cassino and Anzio, which took place in January and May of 1944, um, and what we'll be covering in our next of our uh, two uh, episodes. So... Um, just to give more context of what uh, we'll be covering. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed the first part of our three-part series on the uh, war in Italy. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions 
of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.